Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 28th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about how Oklahoma, Villanova, Syracuse, and North Carolina made it to the Final Four, and we'll discuss the post-game handshake line hijinks of Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski. Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captain's Podcast will join us to assess the life and legacy of Dutch soccer legend Johan Cruyff. And we'll talk about Jonathan Hawk's latest documentary, Fastball, on the science and the folk wisdom behind baseball's hardest throwers. Stefan Fatsis is out this week, so we tracked down Stefan's friend from college, and thankfully he <laughs> knows stuff about sports. John Hawk is the director of documentaries, including Through the Fire, The Lost Son of Havana, Off the Res, Unguarded, The Best That Never Was, Survive in Advance, and Of Miracles and Men, his latest film, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is Fastball, which is out in theaters and on video on demand. John Hawk, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Josh. It's uh, not too much to say it's a dream come true to just be 3,000 miles away from Stefan. <laughs> the restraining order is finally paying dividends. <laughs> With John in New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate Daily Podcast, The Gist, and just the dream of uh, being on this podcast with yeah. us every week yeah. is is alive for Mike. Living my dreams. You know, uh, I heard that you were going to have one of the topics also, the person behind that topic, be one of the guests and panelists on the show. And that's why I thought I was being bumped for Johan Cruyff. But now we know. Now we know <laughs> circumstances have intervened. Yeah, Coach K uh, was not available. He did apologize for uh, saying that he would be able to come on the show. Only after uh, text and video evidence were presented to dispel his uh, initial non-apology and denial. So, John, we're going to have a live show in D.C. It's uh, at Woolly Mammoth, Monday night, April the 25th, slate.com slash live. Your friend Stefan will be there. So 
I have to warn you. It should be fun, regardless. Well, I'll put on a hat and a pair of dark glasses, and he won't know I'm there. And I'll sit in the back, <laughs> nurse a beer, and heckle him mercilessly. It'll be my second dream come true in a month. Yeah. So if you want to come hear that and see that. No, you should. I, I've seen you guys how many times live, and it's always fantastic. So I highly recommend people making the trip to D.C. Even if you don't live in or near D.C., you should fly in for this. Thank you, John. Do you uh, want a quick celebrity story of the uh, celebrity-designated heckler? Please. Okay. I did Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me with Bobcat Goldthwait, and it was the week that David Bowie died, and there was a brief reference. So Bobcat told me afterwards that David Bowie was this huge fan of Bobcat Goldthwait in the 80s and pitched to Bobcat an idea where Bowie would do theater, like kind of smallish venues, and Bobcat would be a plant in the audience heckling Bowie, and the show would always devolve around this session. And Bobcat said, that is, I mean, that is a brilliant and artistic idea, and I will never do it because the crowd will hate me because they paid to see a David Bowie show. They won't know why some weird comedian from the 80s, although it is the 80s, is ruining the show. Uh, the man behind Windy City Heat mm. from the mind of uh, Bobcat Goldthwait. Look it up. The Culture Fest and the Political Gap Fest are also doing live shows, which you should fly in for wherever you are. The Culture Fest is in Manhattan. Political Gab Fest in Atlanta in April. Slate.com slash live. We're also still looking for calls for a call-in show, so call us at 77-HANG-UP-10. Uh, I think we're going to record that in a week. So you have this week to call us at 77-HANG-UP-10. Um, we'd love to hear your questions. And on our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Major League Baseball's jaunt to Cuba, where the Rays just played the Cuban national team in a game attended by President Obama. And uh, John is here. We'll talk about Luis Tiant, the Cuban pitcher who is the subject of his documentary, The Lost Son of Havana, and who threw out the first pitch at the uh, game last week. To hear this bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus, and you can get a free two-week trial at that same URL, slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday night, Turner Sports announcer Kevin Harlan declared that Syracuse was back from the dead on Easter Sunday. If he was still on the team, you could say that Harlan was putting the Christ back in Rakeem Christmas. If they were still in the conference, you could say that Harlan was putting the Big East back in Easter. Uh, but they're not, so I can't say either of those things. Here's what we know about Syracuse. They finished 10th in the ACC. They're the fourth double-digit seed after uh, 1986 LSU, 2006 George Mason, and 2011 VCU. To make it to the Final Four, they have a guy named Malachi Richardson, who's very good. Their coach, Jim Beheim was suspended for nine games this year because of a scandal involving academic improprieties, among other things. In what has been the tournament of the blown lead, the Orange came back from big late deficits against both Gonzaga and Virginia to make it to the Final Four. And they will be playing North Carolina in a uh, academic scandal palooza in the Final <laughs> Four. What do you make of... Uh, Syracuse, Pesca. I think it shows, first of all, we love the underdogs, but the uh, double-digit seed or the high seed as a proxy for underdog is insufficient. And we actually knew that because whenever we would cite the uh, LSU example, you'd say, oh yeah, I guess you got to count LSU. Butler's an underdog that made the final four, but they don't count because they were single-digit seeds. In fact, they got out of the eighth slot, uh, at least that one year. Was it an eighth slot and a ninth slot? I forget. So 
Syracuse is an underdog because they didn't deserve to make the tournament. Now, they play well in the tournament. Now, their Ken Palm is up to 22. So at this point, having beaten all these great teams, it seems like they deserve to make the tournament. So I think we need to reconsider what it means to deserve to make the tournament. And I want to say it means just that. And in the beginning of the tournament, we all agreed that if there was ever an undeserving team, it was Syracuse. Why give them a break? But what the tournament committee decides is who could possibly win games. And the tournament committee will look at Syracuse run and say, we did right. But it also shows that in this era of compression and in this era where there are no real number ones and so many different teams, I think uh, since 1948, it was the most number of uh, losses by the top 10 since the AP had been taking the top 10. So we know all those things. And yet at the same time, we're so shocked that even undeserving teams go on runs in the tournament, or at least Kevin Harlan acts shocked. When there's this compression and when there's very little distance, we know between a top seed and a two seed or a three seed, there's also actually really little distance between an undeserving team, which is to say the 35th best team in the country, and maybe the fifth best team in the country. Well, you, we can also note, right, John, that Syracuse beat a 7, a 15, an 11, and they finally beat the one seed Virginia, although after being down by 15 points in the second half. If Middle Tennessee had not beaten Michigan State, we'd probably be having a conversation about either Michigan State or Virginia being in the Final Four. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think uh, them making the tournament really had anything to do with a thought process that maybe they'll go on a run and they've got some pedigree. And I think they lost to St. John's. <laughs> I know. And St. John's <laughs> didn't win a game in the Big East until the very end of the season. Not a single game. And, well, they beat DePaul, but then, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, you want to talk about your bad losses, but had Louisville not been on this self-inflicted uh, suspension from the tournament. SMU that, too. Yeah, Louisville and SMU. The ACC would have had another team in. And they would have had the same number of teams they had last year. And the conference would have made just as much money from the tournament as they had in their budget because they always get at least that many teams in. So I would think that that was the reason that they got into the tournament because the ACC needed that slot filled to get that budget. And... Uh, it just so happened that they got hot and they faced a couple of really well-coached teams that collapsed uh, in the last 10 minutes of the game. This really has been the tournament of the comeback, you know, Notre Dame, for example. You know, they should have plausibly lost uh, three times instead of just the the one. Um, but Oklahoma, Villanova, and, and North Carolina did have, you know, of any of the teams in the tournament, kind of the most decisive runs. And so it is nice to see those teams in the final four. And it's nice to see Buddy Heald in the final four. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's been a weird kind of couple weeks in that there just aren't really any players that you're watching and thinking like, man, I'm going to be watching this guy for the next 15 years or wow, this guy's really blowing me away with his performances. And Buddy Heald is the one exception. He's a really fun player to watch the beginning of the game against Oregon where he was just knocking down those ridiculous kind of Steph Curry-esque step-back threes, that was like the most kind of fun couple minutes of the tournament that I can I can remember. Well, Malachi Richardson yesterday was unbelievable in the second half, and he had that look of this sort of skinny, long freshman who can do a, all kinds of things that you didn't know he could do, and... What did they, they scored on like 12 consecutive possessions or something like that. And that was exciting to me to see that uh, 
even though this team that probably shouldn't have been there for lots of reasons, see this guy who, wow, you know, he's going to fill out a little bit and he's quick and he shoots and he drives and he might be a great player. Yeah, and it just goes to show that Jim Beheim, with him there, he really is the difference between not making the tournament and making the Final Four. I mean, he says, do a 2-3 zone. And when Jim Beheim says, do a 2-3 zone, they do a 2-3 zone. I guess the <laughs> assistant coach says, do a 2-3 zone. They're like, wait, how many guys at the top of the zone? How many guys at the bottom of the zone? <laughs> I do think Syracuse becomes a harder out in the tournament because that 2-3 zone is kind of unusual. Although, since they've been playing it since 1978, maybe someone could scout it, you know? I don't know. Hello? Hello, UVA? Hello, well, guys? It looks- also- Gonzaga and Virginia seem to have figured it out for about 35 minutes and just maybe uh, forgot in the last five. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. You know, they they extend the top of the zone and open up the middle and, and have a big guy catch the ball at the high post with an open shot. And, you know, then other people get open off that. And then as soon as Syracuse started pressing, it was like Virginia players, they, they got out of their comfort zone and kind of panicked. And you wonder if it was a regular season game, they would have gone on maybe half the run, but Virginia wouldn't have really clutched up and start rushing these shots and making these layups, falling down, and then it's five on four back the other way, every possession. And it, it was very surprising how Virginia sort of came apart in those few minutes. Theory, theory, just trying it out now. Maybe the reason that Beheim's 2-3 zone seems a bit magical these days when it didn't, you know, in the 80s or 90s was just a form of defense to play is because we don't have the great player anymore in college. I mean, we saw what Kyle Wilcher did to the zone, which is you step out, however far they extend it, you take one step back. And if you have a guy with that range, and they're talking about Wilcher's, you know, Curry-type range, Reggie Miller, but Reggie Miller was saying, look, if he wants to take it from there, let him know, totally wrong because the there was somewhere around 23 feet. So it was an NBA three-pointer. And a senior in college who's a really good shooter should be able to make an NBA three-pointer because he's going to be in the NBA next year. But there are so few of those players in college. Maybe Syracuse zone looks better these days. Well, the very well-named London Perantes of Virginia made six out of 10 and was shooting them from extremely deep in that game. And I would, I mean, Barkley was making the same argument post-game that Virginia panicked, which I don't really buy because in the Miami game, the previous round when they were getting pressed, they did the exact same thing um, where they it sped them up and they did a perfectly fine job and they just executed and made the shots. I think that Syracuse had a couple shot blockers who made it really much harder for Virginia to finish when they were in transition. And so probably, possibly some of it was mental and some of it was the stage But I think some of it was just the difference between making shots and missing them. And when you do miss and it's a higher tempo, then you're going to the other team's going to get right back in the game. This is something you guys talk about a lot, whether we can impose the the narrative idea on why they missed shots on one night and didn't miss them another night. And I would believe and it would, I guess, be not possible to convince me or to prove otherwise right? You can't prove it a, a negative that it was just the idea that they're playing to get into the final four this time that took them a little bit out of their, you know, that had them rattled a little bit more. They were thinking more than just playing. And that's the kind of thing that can snowball, right? That's a, that's a vicious cycle. And I, I do believe that especially young players are, are very susceptible to that kind of vicious cycle of getting a little scared and which makes you play less well which makes you very scared which makes you play even less well and uh 
And if the other team catches fire at the same time, then then you lose a 16-point lead. So the Villanova-Oklahoma game should be really fun. We haven't talked about Villanova very much because they just blew everybody out and looked awesome. And it's uh, there wasn't anything particularly controversial about it. But they're a really fun team. They're deep. Um, and that should just be a great matchup um, just for basketball reasons. The Syracuse-North Carolina game, I think, is something that the NCAA office should not be particularly happy about because the natural storyline there is that both schools have had these major academic scandals. The Syracuse one, they've already, the report's already come out and Bayheim has already been punished for it. They're already on probation. The North Carolina one has just been dragging on and on and on. And we don't have an infractions report yet, but very similar in terms of work being done for basketball players by staff members or, you know, in the case of North Carolina, these paper classes that were disproportionately attended by basketball players. And so just sort of both kind of exposing the student athlete myth in their own way. And we will just have a lot of happy conversations about that in the lead up to Saturday's game against Houston in uh, Houston. The thing that's that's interesting about Bayheim now is that uh, the people on the inside at other programs and such that I've spoken to say that you know he's been really clean for a while since the Hakeem Warwick days, you know, he's really not going in for the one and done guys that you really have to uh do things uh that aren't quite proper to get and He's, you know, not doing the things that he was known for in the 80s when the car dealer was sitting on the bench and the players are driving Mercedes around campus. And, uh, you know, so the the irony there is, I don't know if it's karma or or what, but, you know, he's uh, known as a, as a really down-to-earth guy and, and someone who has come to a place in his career where he's very personable, very likable guy, very genuine He's not the imperious kind of personality like Larry Brown or Rick Pitino or Coach K, of course, who are sort of sanctimonious about who they are and at the same time just just in the mud with everybody else. Well, before we transition to Coach K, I mean, Beheim was going on and on about like what a what a severe suspension it was when he got, you know, when he had to sit down for nine games this season. I find him to be pretty unsympathetic. Figure. I mean, they they were having tutors log in and impersonate players in like you know whatever electronic system that Syracuse had to do the assignments for them. There's not like that much gray area there. I mean, I guess the gray area is like whether uh, Beheim ordered the code orange or not. But I mean, that's <laughs> like the definition of lack of institutional well, control Well, I, I, I would say that the NCAA is the one with the lack of institutional, if there is even an institution. But when they say that Syracuse had their institutional priorities wrong when they became all about winning basketball games and, and not about academic integrity, then, then the, whole, the whole scenario is just comedy. I think they meant their priorities wrong when it became about winning basketball games and not football games. Because we know <laughs> that you need to do this to win football games. Uh, just my, a couple takeaways from the Syracuse scandal. I love the idea of the academic advisors uh, impersonating kids. I wonder if they dressed up like when Steve Buscemi was on 30 Rock. How do you do, fellow youngsters? But the, another just 
interesting thing to me is the is the distance between how impressive the title director of basketball operations seems to be ooh and what the director of basketball operations actually does which i don't know i guess you just couldn't call it Beheim scut boy or the stuff that Beheim won't do to get his hands dirty or liaison with the ymca re chicanery but that's what the director of basketball operations job seems to actually be in practice at syracuse the basketball team cannot operate without eligible players. That's true. So he must keep them eligible. So I wrote uh, about the Shashevsky handshake line thing for people who didn't follow it. Um, what happened was after the Oregon game where Duke got uh, blown out, he told Dylan Brooks, the Oregon player in the handshake line, that you're too good of a player for that. That being... Uh, taking a shot as the shot clock was expiring towards the end of the game. Brooks mentioned it in a post-game press conference. Krzyzewski denied it in, in very high dudgeon, and we can listen to a clip of Krzyzewski's denial. Apparently after the game, Dylan said that you told him that he was too good of a player to be showing off at the end like that. I didn't he say said, that. Oh, because he apparently said of you that well, you, you were right. You can say whatever you want. Dylan Brooks is a hell of a player. I said, you're a terrific player. And you, you can take whatever he said and then go with it. And so when CBS released the audio, and I won't play the audio for you here because it's kind of poor quality, but the audio reveals that Krzyzewski said exactly what Brooks said that he said. And Krzyzewski apologized kind of afterwards in a statement saying that he answered the reporter's question incorrectly, which is a, a fun euphemism. But the whole thing was just very high handed. The fact that he even thought it was his place to say this to Dylan Brooks in the first place, the fact that he even considered it poor sportsmanship in the first place, the fact that, and I would argue that he lied about it. It's like a semantic question of whether he lied, but I would argue that he lied. The whole thing. How is that a semantic question? Well, does the liar, I guess, liar lay, and lie would be correct. (laughs) (laughs) He, you know, Brooks said after the game, that Krzyzewski said he was too good of a player to showboat. And he didn't literally say that. And so some people are arguing, oh, well, you know, Krzyzewski was just saying he didn't say he didn't say exactly what Brooks said. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's farcical. But did this change what you guys thought of Krzyzewski? Do you think it's like a legitimate controversy? Do you think too much has been made of it, et cetera? I think that Krzyzewski is, shouldn't have said it, and I just think he shouldn't have taken umbrage. I think that it's a clock winding down, and when a team is losing, they didn't try to do any, he didn't try a fancy-ass dunk. He took a shot. The shot went in. Krzyzewski's upset that his team lost. He was being a baby, and then he shouldn't have uh, lashed out at the reporter who asked him the question. And without the, without the video evidence, like so much in our society, he would have uh, gone on with that lie. When we went down to Durham, with Derek Wittenberg to interview Coach Krzyzewski for Survive in Advance to talk about this relationship with Jim Valvano he had. It was one of the most disappointing experiences I'd had as someone who who interviews people like this all the time because I wanted to hate him so much, and he was so great. He was funny. He was warm. He was hospitable. He was... uh, he he spoke. He didn't speak down to you. He 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 engaged you, and and he made you feel like he was happy to be sitting in his office with you talking, and uh, it broke my heart 
because I hated him so much for so many years, and now I can't hate him anymore. And even when he lies, says something silly and lies about it, I still love him. I'm glad they lost, though. Is it possible to <laughs> love a guy and root against him? Because I apparently can't. Apparently, it is. I can't root uh, for him, but I can't root for Duke. But I love, I love Coach K. John, here is what I would say to that. I have uh, no doubt that he was a uh, very kind and uh, a lovely man in your uh, encounters for Survive in Advance. But the way that he treated Dylan Brooks and the handshake line, and I wrote about this in the piece that I wrote in the aftermath of uh, the handshake thing. Um, the way that he treated the student newspaper reporters at Duke in 1990 after they gave Duke a B plus, how dare they, on a midseason report card, just the kind of high handedness and smarminess and feeling like these kind of young, impudent students could benefit from your wisdom. And, you know, this is a guy who has an ethics center named after him at Duke and the the way that the way that he's talked talk to these uh these students just makes me think that maybe he's uh better at managing up than managing down. You ever heard that one? God, I feel so used now. He, he was only nice to me because I was doing something for him. <laughs> well, Sorry, what John. would the ethical center say about that? <laughs> Let's run it through the ethical center. Ethical Last week, Ken Early wrote in the Irish Times that Johan Cruyff, who has died in Barcelona aged 68, was the greatest European footballer of all time. He was also the principal architect of the modern European style of play and a transformative icon who reinvented the image of his country at home and around the world. You could say Cruyff was football's answer to his contemporary, David Bowie, but he was also its Karl Marx, a visionary whose ideas revolutionized the sport. He was the most brilliant thinker on football who also happened to have been a brilliant player. In The Guardian, David Winner wrote that Britain had the Beatles and the Stones and the Netherlands had Johan Cruyff. We're going to bring in Ken Early now. He's a writer for the Irish Times, sometimes Slate, and he's one of the hosts of the Second Captain's podcast. He's joining us from a hotel lobby in Belfast in advance of the Northern Ireland-Slovenia friendly uh, which we will have team coverage of later. Uh, hello, Ken. Hi, Josh. Good to talk to you. Yeah, and so I think we, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, we need to adjudicate this controversy that's been happening in the uh, obits. Is Johan Cruyff David Bowie? Is he the Beatles or is he the Rolling Stones? <laughs> Actually, um, the the music critic Taylor Parks reckons that he's probably more the Bob Dylan. The comparison that he was making was with uh, popular music and suddenly with the advent of Bob Dylan becoming smart, not just being, you know, the thing that sort of everybody was into, all of us masses were into, but also a kind of a really kind of intelligent uh, pursuit, you know, a lot of intellectual depth. I mean, that was his, I mean, when I said David Bowie, I think it's mainly just because it's something to do with the glamour. I mean, Cruyff was a really glamorous figure. I mean, he was kind of a beautiful man. You know, he was on the field. He looked he looked amazing. Uh, he's got that kind of um, extreme kind of slenderness that you would associate with Bowie, um, but also kind of bringing this sort of glamour and creativity to a sort of a, a traditional, like, working-class sport where people kind of tended to think about the game the same way all across Northern Europe, uh, Cruyff was a man who came along and said, well, you know, we can do things uh, a little bit differently here. 
And how did he bring intelligence to the game? In so many ways. I mean, okay, if you can think about it then, in, in football sort of in the 50s and 60s, and this is this is kind of the football to which he emerged. I mean, he was born 1947, so his, his professional career begins sort of in the mid-60s. Uh, You're talking about a game which is fairly hidebound by convention. There's a sense in which, you know, a centre-forward is a big, strong player who is good at heading the ball and pretty good at using his elbows. He really only plays in one area of the field. You know, a winger is, you know, one of these, a short little guy probably, you know, came off badly during the rationing period in Europe. You know, skillful <laughs> dribbler, gets the ball into the box. You know, people had kind of a set idea of what each position on the field represented, the kind of skills that you would need to play a particular position. And players who, who played a given position were, you know, tended to think, well, that's, you know, that's what I do. I, you know, if I'm a center half, obviously I don't, I don't dribble. I only need to be good at one thing. And what Cruyff did, one of his, his kind of key insights, and I shouldn't say that it's only his insight, because the coach uh, at Ajax, Rinus Mikkels, was also a very important figure in the development of this. But what Cruyff is saying is that it's actually important for every player on the field to understand how to play every position on the field. Because, you know, it's 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 pretty obvious thing, really, that once the ball is out there in the field and everyone's running around, the positions kind of tend to get scrambled around a little bit. Um, total football is is what the rest of the world tended to call the football that they started to play at Ajax in the late 60s and early 70s uh, and with the Dutch national team. So what was it, I, you know, we say uh, England had the Beatles and the Stones and the Netherlands had Cruyff. The Netherlands also had Golden Earring as a rock group, by the way. <laughs> but what was it either about Ajax or the Netherlands that saw what Cruyff, Cruyff could do and said, do it? Or what did, did Cruyff's talent, was it so immense that the smart people who ran the club said, we've got to unleash this guy? Or were they being more inventive and that allowed Cruyff to flourish? I guess I'm asking you to, we've talked so much about the man, talk a little bit about the milieu that allowed him to flourish. Well, they had they did have a very gifted generation of footballers who are, you know, rough contemporaries of Cruyff. I mean, it's, it's you know, even if you've got this one guy who's at a level above everyone else and ha has this great idea uh, about how to, I mean, I, I'm talking about, like, if you, you watch footage of him, it's, it's ridiculous the way that he goes on on the field. It's almost ridiculous. The effrontery of of this guy standing, sort of pointing, giving orders, clearly instructing everyone else on the field where to go uh, and how to move. Now, you know, it, I mean, it's it's not something that you see most players do ever. It's just not something that most players have the kind of brass neck to do. Cruyff is somebody, is one of those rare people who comes along once in a while, who's completely convinced that uh, always that they're right about everything. It's obvious that I'm right. You know, I'm, I'm uh, of course I'm right. And I'm going to, you know, I, I, I don't have any qualms whatsoever about telling you what to do. Uh, you should be uh, lucky uh, to get instructions from me as to where you should be on the field. You know, he, he wasn't one of these people who are kind of uh, riven with self-doubt. In terms of the milieu in which you grew up, I mentioned the coach, Rinus Michels, um, who was in charge of Ajax at, at this time and who later was the coach of the Dutch national team that won the European Championships in 1988. It's still the only time they've ever actually won a trophy. And he, you know, shared a lot of these ideas or developed these ideas in tandem with Cruyff. So another big thing that they did, which came as a surprise to everyone else, was uh, the pressing. Um, in 1974, they played both Brazil and Argentina. And 
really, uh, really thrashed them out of side things. 4-0 against Argentina, 2-0 against Brazil. And what the South Americans were surprised by was to receive a pass in their own half and look up and see that suddenly they've been swarmed by five or six orange-shirted guys who seem to be able to, you know, it's, how are they able to do this? How are they able to kind of run so much? What, you know, what are they on? Was what the South Americans uh, were thinking a lot of the time. But in fact, it wasn't really... Um, it wasn't really about an extreme physical capacity that these players had. It was more to do with how the system enabled them to ration their energy to use it most efficiently. It's all about, Quiver's always saying, the game is all about meters. It's all about meters. It's all about the distances between your players. It's all about the distances that you have to cover. In this war of you know how to conserve energy, what football has, has tended to do is more, well, get more energetic players as opposed to have your players move around the field in a more intelligent way, which is what Cruyff was, uh, was always focused on. Um, just one quick comment, and you know we've talked about this before on the show about how rare it is for great players to be great managers and how a great player can't often understand like they think that people can just do it like they did and they can't teach. And so it's kind of remarkable that Cruyff was not like that. And then also I'm curious for your thoughts on, you know, I was thinking about what are some other teams like the 1974 Netherlands team that lost the world cup final, um, Michigan basketball's fab five and the NFL, the, Houston Oilers, who kind of invented the run-and-shoot um, passing offense, the Suns teams of Steve Nash that would shoot the ball in seven seconds or less, teams that lost but actually won in the long run because they were right and every other team ended up playing the way that they did. And so uh, about the 74 Netherlands team, I've read that they lost just because they were overconfident or that you know, and that it didn't really matter and they were the winners – Anyway, is that kind of how you view it? No, that's um, that's Johan Cruyff's cognitive dissonance uh, working. I think he probably would have preferred to win that World Cup uh, rather than Naturally. to lose, and rather than to lose the final. You know, um, it, it's it's true that the team was hugely influential and set a kind of a opened people's uh, minds and eyes to a way of playing, which later. Uh, became really the dominant way of playing. I mean, it's most obviously through Barcelona, but also you could say through the current world champions, Germany, who restructured their own game 10 or 15 years ago based on on these types of principles. So the legacy has been huge. I mean, the game itself was a disaster for Holland. Uh, definitely some arrogance came into it. I mean, if you, if you watch that game, you can see at halftime when it's, it's already gone 2-1 to Germany. The Holland having scored 1-0, you know, the first minute... Uh, Germany haven't touched the ball. They pass the ball around, 15, 16 passes. Cruyff gets the ball, dribbles through, goes down, penalty kick. 1-0 to Holland in Germany. Germany, West Germany, I should be saying uh, all along here, West Germany. West Germany haven't touched the ball yet. And, uh, you know, as a statement of superiority, it's 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 impossible really to better that. Uh, and the Dutch then almost sort of became intoxicated by their own uh, superiority. I forgot to, you know, score the second goal. If you watch the game at halftime, you can see Cruyff arguing with the referee, Jack Taylor, getting a yellow card. I mean, it's, it, it was a lot more difficult to get a yellow card back then. You had to be quite obnoxious uh, in, you know, in your, in your descent to get a yellow card. But this is Cruyff already kind of maybe beginning to lose, lose the focus on the game, getting, getting, I mean, he was always arguing with everybody anyway. But uh, in this instance, his energy was kind of 
being wasted a little bit, arguing with the referee. They couldn't get back into that game. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that the, you know they were they were probably the better team, but the German team also had great players and also a you know a formidable playing culture. What about Brian Phillips' tweet? What did he say? He tweeted uh, that it would be remiss not to mention at the time of of Christ's death that he was a colossal pain in the ass. Oh yeah. Did you find him to be that? Oh, un- undoubtedly. But it goes back to that to that you know arrogance, which is inseparable from somebody who stands up and says, "I'm right, everyone else is wrong." You know, you're not going to be the kind of person who does that unless you've got you've got that in you. You know, if you were to, if you want to tell everyone that the way they've been doing it all along, um, the way the way they think the, the game they think they understand, they actually don't understand at all. It's not a kind of a a, a mild mannered person who ever does that. You know what I mean? You need to have that kind of effrontery. You need to have that that sort of um, you know you think you know something, and the rest of the world doesn't understand it and you have to tell them that this is the way it's actually it actually is i mean what kind of person that's it's like a messianic uh kind of mentality you know what i mean it's not a it's it's a kind of um, not someone who's prepared to go okay well you know i won't rock the boat you know that such a person maybe would have the idea but wouldn't um wouldn't necessarily open their mouths Cruyff never had that problem you know i mean and and obviously it could lead him to i mean in in his later years you know simon cooper who's a, a, a you know Anglo-Dutch uh, journalist and, and historian, talks a bit about how Cruyff stopped thinking seriously about the game when he stopped managing Barcelona. He, you know, he left Barcelona in '96. I think he'd had various health problems. He had to have a, you know, he he smoked all his life until he had a heart bypass in his mid 40s. So he um, he stopped managing then. It was such a, it was too stressful. A job, and I don't think his family wanted him to, to keep doing it. And at that point, maybe he stopped updating his ideas. But now, you know, he, he nevertheless stopped. He, he he never stopped thinking that he was right. Uh, and so he would uh, he would kind of constantly lecture uh, the current managers, you know, in Holland and in Spain, um, you know, the Dutch Football Association, the the club at Ajax, uh, that telling them they were doing things wrong, they should be doing things his way, and they were kind of going, well, Johan, you know, the game's changed. He caused a lot of political problems at Ajax in his later years. You know, there was there was a lot of fights. There was a lot of you know, he 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 was ruthless when it came to sacking people. You know, he definitely had that egotism that sort of arrogance but you know maybe if, if you're going to be a prophet to begin with you gotta you gotta be prepared to stand up and um you know have the courage of your convictions and, and i'm sure there's a negative side to that as well as a positive it's great that he was a smoker he he had no wind and he came up with this way to play soccer where you don't have to run very much <laughs> yeah yeah it's absolutely you know i mean it was it players back then um it's 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 there's no comparison i mean you don't see physiques really like Cruyff anymore in football. I mean, he had a really extraordinary physique. When you watch him, you're, it's, it's hard to understand how someone that slim can generate this sort of power to, to do some of the kind of turns, to, to produce some of the, the kind of tight moves, or to get power into the ball from what seems like an impossible angle. Um, I suppose a large part of strength uh, has to do with coordination as well as mass. So yeah, I, I guess he had that as well. And socks. I think it was mostly the socks. <laughs> socks, yeah. Joining us uh, from the finest hotel lobby in Belfast, that was Ken Early, who's a writer for the Irish Times and the, one of the hosts of the Second Captain's podcast. Thanks very much, Ken. Thanks, Josh. All right, John Hawk, let's talk about your movie. 
All right. Let's talk about it. The documentary Fastball, it's about baseball pitchers, how they do what they do, and the lore behind the hardest throwers and their hardest throws. The documentary covers 100 years of baseball history from Walter Johnson through Aroldis Chapman and features interviews with Nolan Ryan and Hank Aaron and Bryce Harper and a bunch of physicists. There's also amazing old footage of the various ways that people measured pitch velocity back in the day. Uh, here's a clip from the documentary. It's featured in the documentary. Uh, the Cleveland Indians' Bob Feller, who starred in the major leagues in the 30s and 40s and who Stefan, unfortunately, is not here to imitate, tested the speed of his fastball against a motorcycle. Here's the test which shows which is the faster, the racing motorcycle or the pitched ball. Coming down the highway at a speed of 86 miles per hour, the policeman crosses the pitching line, and there they go. Bingo. And look. Bob Feller gives him a head start of 10 feet before he throws the ball. Watch the ball now. Bob's pitch is gaining all the way. It breaks the target right through the bullseye, a few feet in front of the motorcycle. Well, where are you, Mr. Policeman? Oh, there you are. I don't know what your speedometer reads now, but that ball was traveling better than 100 miles an hour, and that's plenty fast. Thanks for the context. <laughs> Josh, can we do the rest of this so with the could. music underneath? Keep going. So if you couldn't tell from the music and from the old-timey announcer voice, this is a very fun movie. This has been the central obsession in baseball for at least the last hundred years, how hard guys can throw a baseball and whether the best hitters in the game can catch up to that heat. John, the interviews in here, I mean, you got so many baseball legends to talk and there is this kind of like tension in the movie between the like myth and the legend and the like hard scientific facts of, you know, how fast guys throw, what the pitch looks like and what it does. When we were talking about the myth of the rising fastball, it was so uh, great the way it worked out that Hank Aaron and Bryce Harper basically lock arms to refute science, but they each did it in the style befitting their stature. Hank Aaron said, well, I don't want to get into any arguments with scientists, but I have to say that sometimes they make a mistake. And Bryce Harper said... Scientists don't know what they're talking about. They got to grab a helmet and a bat and get in there against Craig Kimbrell. His pitch rises every time. So uh, that's a clown equation, bro. <laughs> so, uh, but that that was the whole idea. Thomas Tull, who who's a, a producer, he runs Legendary Pictures. You know, they made the Dark Knight movies and the uh, he made uh, Inception and the Hangover movies and Straight Outta Compton. But he made Forty Two. Uh, about Jackie Robinson, and and he's he's got this real, genuine, true believer kind of passion for baseball. And he, what he wanted to do, what he asked me to do when he called me up to work on this film with him, was to somehow connect Walter Johnson to Aroldis Chapman, and show how that there's something primal and uh, you know in our gut uh, about this hardest thrower against the best hitters that that resonates uh, the same way it did a hundred years ago so to have gotten everybody from hank aaron and nolan ryan al kaline uh, ernie banks the late lamented and uh, tony gwynn as well before he passed away 20 hall of famers uh and all the great guys from the present tense um harper and mccutcheon and chapman and uh 
Verlander and David Price, who uh, the funny thing about that clip that you played it with Bob Feller was that Verlander, uh, he knew all about it when we did a pre-interview with him. He was talking about that and how he always wanted to know how he threw against those guys, how he would have stood up uh, in terms of velocity against those guys. So what we did was we shot Verlander on a green screen in the same angles as Bob Feller in that clip with the motorcycle and inserted him into the scene to uh, sort of have some fun with it, but also to show what the whole film was going to be about. It's about taking the present and the past and putting them side by side and seeing how the magic uh, of the game really has remained constant. You know, it was I didn't know that there was an Inception connection, but when Ellen Page convinced with her mind, convinced Eddie Murray that Rich Gossage had actually thrown the ball when in fact, obviously, he was just pretending to have done so, I knew that something was going on. It's very deep. This documentary, so I watched the Knuckleball documentary. Uh, I was eager to watch that. I'm fascinated with the Knuckleball. and But for the fact that this was a John Hawk production, I'm like, fastballs? Who cares about fastballs? I mean, they go fast. What, what, what depth is there? It's a little, I mean, a little like the, uh, Crash Davis line about strikeouts being fascist. But I was wrong, and what I realized about it is that fastballs are the only thing in baseball that can be measured empirically without anyone else else's involvement. So we talk about maybe you could say the length of home runs. Well, you're you're taking advantage of a pitch and how fast the pitch coming in has something to do or also how much the uh, pitch doesn't or hangs over the plate has a lot to do with how far it goes out. And we're not we're never really sure about how far these balls go. And just like fastballs, I guess there are a lot of myths to it. Early in the film, Joe Posnanski made the point that when Bob Feller was breaking records with his fastball, it was about the time that Jesse Owens was breaking speed records on the track. And we said, of track athletes, well, that's about as fast as anyone will ever go, and we were totally wrong, and Jesse Owens' times would be good high school times now. But fastballs haven't gotten that much faster. I mean, maybe they have a bit faster. Your scientist at the end of the movie actually pretty uh, convincingly demonstrates that Nolan Ryan's fastball is even faster than we thought it was. But there hasn't been this huge gain in the fastball, and it got me to thinking... The track analogy is apt, but it's almost like, so you have a Roldis Chapman there. He's a guy who just has to pitch fast once, maybe five times a game, come in every couple days, take a day off. It's like comparing uh, a miler, a uh, starting pitcher is like a miler, there's endurance involved, to a sprinter. And so the fastness of a fastball, the miler, even though the times of the mile comes down, he's not considered the world's fastest person. Aroldis Chapman now pitches the world's fastest fastball. The empiricism is fascinating, but also how we've changed what we want our fastball pitchers to do is also pretty fascinating. That's the thing that makes Nolan Ryan, in in retrospect, so incredible, is that he was throwing so hard so many innings because he was walking so many guys and striking out so many guys. He was throwing so many pitches, 150 to 175 a game and coming back on, on three days rest. And yeah. the, the ultimate example, which he talks about in the film was he, he was going against Louis Tiant and they had a 15 inning battle. And, and I think actually Ryan left in the 13th or after 13, he had 19 strikeouts, 10 walks and threw 232 pitches. And Tian ended up losing the game in the 15th. 2-1, I think. but And then he came back on three days rest and won a one nothing shutout. Whitey Herzog says, and I think the, it's not exactly this, but it was close enough that it was accurate enough to talk about. He, he had the lead 
in 77 consecutive games in which he had a lead after seven, he finished all 77 games and won them all. Yeah. He was his own closer. Yeah. Nolan Ryan is a total freak, not just because he pitched faster than everyone, because he needed less recovery time than everyone. And if you, I mean, there's a general correlation between hard throwing and poor health. Nolan Ryan is way off that scatter plot. And the funny thing is, you could pick, all right, who'd be the worst guy to advise someone on how to keep young pitchers healthy? It would be Nolan Ryan, the biggest freak of all time. Although the the, the pitchers, Louis Tian, who I, I've talked about this a lot with and and... Uh, all the guys, Gossage too, in, for relief pitcher pitching, uh, wouldn't surprise people to hear from Gossage at this point that he believes this. But, you know, these guys felt like, how do you make muscles stronger? You use them. And so having pitchers pitch less is actually not helping their arms. The more you pitch, the stronger your arm gets. And Tiant, after 68, when he was... Won 21 games and nine shutouts or whatever it was, 1.60 ERA. The Indians shut him down and wouldn't let him play winter ball for the first time in his life. And he begged them, no, I have to play. I have to pitch. My arm's going to get hurt if I don't pitch. And they refused to let him pitch. And sure enough, he hurt his arm the next year and and really didn't recover for three or four years. Um, So... Well, now we're getting into the realm of folk uh, wisdom again, aren't we, uh, John? <laughs> That's right. And folk wisdom is called wisdom for a reason. And I think you can't blame the players. And if you're not doing it from a young age, you, you're not going to be able to start doing it when you get to the big leagues. But I think that this idea that in a way it was all very different back then, but in a way it's all the same. And you could drop Verlander onto a mound in 1936 and he'd be awesome. And that's kind of the beauty of the of the game that we were trying to get in the film, that, that there is, you know, the data be damned, there is this eternal kind of magical quality to these guys who can throw, get it up near 100, and, and, uh, and we're always going to love that. Yeah, I mean, that is that. unique in baseball, right? Like, you couldn't drop a current NBA player into the NBA of however many years ago, many, many decades ago. And have them, you know, seem like they would plausibly fit there and definitely not vice versa. Like you couldn't take an NBA player from 60 or 70 years ago and put them in today's NBA and expect them to do anything. But, you know, what would you say if I said that I take the Bryce Harper and Hank Aaron position on this this other question, which I really find it hard to believe that Bob Feller and Nolan Ryan threw as fast or faster than pitchers of today. That just strikes me as implausible. Well, here's the thing. There's a reason that people can't throw faster than a certain amount because the amount of force it takes to propel that certain projectile that weighs that much and is shaped that way uh, beyond a certain speed is is enough force that it would pull the arm off the body, that the physiology of human beings is such that you will tear your muscles right off your, your bone if you throw harder than that so wait you're saying that throwing is bad for pitchers they get hurt <laughs> it's, and yet without it <laughs> it's not actually throwing it's 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 stopping throwing it's 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 you can throw but then you have to keep your arm on the body and that's where you get hurt but uh i think it's more like looking at lifespan josh lots of people live a lot longer now and you'd be silly to say that oh the guys in the old days lived as long as they did today but the limits of life right? 
in going back uh, a thousand years of recorded history is is about as long as it is today. Nobody is ever going to live longer than 117, 120 years, right? That's the outer limit of what a human No, being. going back in time, would you find someone who lived more than 117? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. but you did have people who supposedly had this, you know, the outer limits of the lifespan is the same as it ever was. You have many, many more reaching nearer to that limit. And that's the same as the fastball. There has always been... That's a great analogy. Well, I'm, t- I'm totally convinced. Well, thank you, Josh. There's, I've been thinking so about Bryce this. So Harper. He's, he's signed up. <laughs> but uh, so, so there's so many more people because of training and nutrition and performance-enhancing substances that can, can get up there and, and, and throw that hard uh, with a frequency that would have been unheard of in the past. But... They're never going to get past it. So it's totally plausible to me that Bob Feller and Nolan Ryan and maybe even Walter Johnson, who was clocked, you know, wearing his Sunday best and flat shoes on a uh, flat floor indoors at a rifle range. Ty Cobb is telling me that you could hear it whiz when it went past and he was the only guy like it. I, I um yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Ty Cobb on this. You know, sometimes archival footage is delightful, but when you really think about it, you have Walter Johnson telling the kid, all right, if your fastball is your best pitch, you're going to want to pitch that. But if your curveball is the best pitch, maybe you want to go with curve instead of the fastball. And the effect on the viewers, oh my God, it's Walter Johnson. He's talking to a kid. What wisdom. What a piece of crap piece of advice that was. Uh, do you believe... so? A through line through this, and and it's uh, there are chapters and all the great pitchers you'd want to details that you want to hear about Gibson and details that you want to hear about the greats and Chapman. David Price has a great segment, but what do you believe in terms of measuring the miles per hour? Because we saw different devices, and it seems to me that the first device where they tried to determine how fast Walter Johnson pitched, where you broke some copper wires, and then there was a measurement. And your scientists said, well, they didn't, they didn't uh, account for the actual distance of the plate and drag. Did they account for the copper wires slowing it down? It seems that Walter Johnson is still being punished in terms of the MPH. I think you finally, I don't want to give anything away, but you finally wind up asserting essentially that Nolan Ryan had 10 more miles per hour in his pitch than Walter Johnson? Yeah, let's see. Um yeah, even more than that. Yeah, even that more than that. That seems a lot to me. In fact, that Nolan Ryan, from what we hear about human reaction, it seems impossible that Nolan Ryan's pitch is that fast and that Walter Johnson's pitch had that much of an effect uh, with it being so relatively slow, according to today's standards. Getting into a couple, couple of subjects there. So I think if Walter Johnson had been timed on a mound yeah. in a game, yeah. I think it would have been a lot closer to what they time Nolan Ryan as. I think if you time Nolan Ryan in the off season at uh, at an indoor rifle range in Connecticut, he probably wouldn't have been up around where he, where he was um, in the game. Uh, But in terms of reaction time, this is, this was the revelation to me. And what happened was I I was meeting with the, the physicist and the, and the neuropsychologist at Carnegie Mellon, uh, before we filmed with them, just to sort of spitball about it. I, that's a that's a bad term. I guess, <laughs> well, so, it, was, it, it wasn't so bad before 1960. Right? <laughs> so uh, just to throw around some ideas. And what I said to them was that uh, something I didn't understand was that all these Hall of Famers said to me that against Koufax and against Gibson and against these guys who were really at the upper limits, that at 50 feet, the ball would disappear. 
and then you'd hear it hit the catcher's mitt. So how does what what's going on there? And they understood right away what was going on there. And and actually, when you're tracking an object in motion, your eye isn't right on that object all the time. You're actually your eyeball is racing ahead of it to where it's going. And then when it gets there, because your brain is taking snapshots of it, it's not a smooth, continuous. It's like frames. So your eye is rushing ahead to where you think the ball is going, and then when you see it there, your brain fills in in this sort of instant memory that takes milliseconds is actually going into the the instant past. You know,、mm-hmm. the last few milliseconds and painting in those frames.、Mm-hmm. So what happens is when the ball outraces your eye, your eye jumps ahead to where you think it is, and it it isn't there. Because either it's passed there, or because you thought it was going to sink more, because you're used to a 92 mile an hour fastball, and this one didn't sink as much because it's going 100. It's not there, so your brain instantaneously creates this story in the vision center of the brain that shows the ball disappearing. Yeah, and you're literally in what we call vision. You're literally seeing the ball disappear, and of course. It's an illusion. It's just your brain trying to deal with this error message that you you thought you were going to hit the ball and you didn't. So what followed from that was they explained well, to me. If I can interrupt, oh yeah, the same thing David Epstein wrote about in the Sports Gene about why Major League Baseball hitters can't hit Jenny Finch, the fast pitch softball pitcher, is that just the visual perception and where they're used to seeing. The ball is just not in the right place, and so it looks like the ball disappears. On scouting reports, I'm going to begin to see fast eyes. Well, that's true, and and there the the range is is for human beings to and how far sort of into the future you're seeing is、uh, between one tenth and two tenths of a second, and obviously when you're talking about a pitch that lasts less than four tenths, that's enormously important that difference. And you and I probably are closer to one tenth, and The great hitters. I got slow eyes. I got good. I got long hands, but slow eyes. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the good hitters、uh, are are up around that two tenths barrier, and it just so happens that at sixty feet six inches, the speed a hundred mile an hour fastballs, the time it takes for a hundred mile an hour fastball to reach the plate, is given the amount of time you need to actually make the decision. To swing at a particular place in time and space is right at the limit that the fastest reactors can do it. For the rest of us, it would just be a total guess for us to start swinging in time to hit the ball. We and I am a guess to... <laughs> hitter, but even when I'm sitting dead red fastball, I cannot do that.、You're、but、correct. so so it what you're really seeing is the outer limits of human potential. On both ends of this equation,、mm-hmm. and when you think about that, that in this instantaneous confrontation, that you're watching the the best on each side, and I think somehow instinctively we sense this when it's Bob Welch against Reggie Jackson in the World Series, and that this is as good as it's going to get. On both sides here, and that's there's something inherently dramatic about that on a a real gut level, which is, I think, why we you know even though the game is slow and this and that, there are these moments in a baseball game when you cannot take your eyes off it. So, John, how do people watch the movie?、Uh, 
people can go With their to their eyes though a <laughs> tenth of a second after you saw it you'll still think it's there uh, it, it's it's uh, playing in theaters this week in every major league market and uh other than that, it's on iTunes. It actually went number one on iTunes and documentaries, wow. which was pretty cool. And Amazon and pay-per-view on your cable system. And any, any way you, you watch on demand, you can see Fastball. Awesome. And it's really, really fun. Um, and that old-timey music is only in part of the movie. But you can get Mike Pasco to come over to your house and just do it. Fast. Now it is time for Afterballs. And John, I'm curious if you came across this. I found a story from the Richmond Virginia Times Dispatch, June 7th, 1939. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, no, okay. His no, brain no. is a microfiche for Richmond dis- Dispatch. <laughs> Humphreys harden faster than Feller's meter shows. Wow. An AP story, three Boston good. Red Sox threw a baseball 122 feet a second into a new Photoelectric pitching meter yesterday. Three Cleveland Indians could do only 119 feet per second. Um, unofficially, Bob Feller threw three balls into the meter from a distance of 20 feet. The best mark he recorded was 119 feet per second. His less touted teammate, pitcher Johnny Humphreys, recorded a mark of 127 feet per second. I looked up this guy in the Nyer James Guide to Pitchers Hall of Fame. Manager Joe McCarthy said he's faster than Feller and maybe faster than any pitcher in the league. What a future. A columnist uh, noted that both Joe DiMaggio and Lou Gehrig agreed with McCarthy's assessment that he was faster than Feller. He had arm problems, though, and never controlled his curveball. He pitched 1,002 career innings in the major leagues and only had 317 strikeouts, (laughs) 373 walks. So for all this uh, touting of Johnny Humphreys. K per nine of three, three and change, not very good. No. Had you ever heard of this guy? I hadn't heard of him. I remember uh, when when they did Walter Johnson in the rifle range. Um, there was they brought another guy along just to have another guy to compare, and it was somebody from the Brooklyn Dodgers who was like a breaking ball pitcher, and he threw faster than Johnson that day in that in that uh, rifle range. So. So um, for this fastball seems to, too. Yeah, this seems to be uh, a, a common thing where they, they set up these things to time the fastest pitcher and some, some kid nobody heard of comes up and, and throws faster. But uh, it's hard to throw it through the target. It is hard to throw it through the target. Uh, Mike Pesca, what is your Johnny Humphreys? So since John was talking, I started to do a little research. So John, do you know Nolan Ryan? Do you know who his most victimized opponent was? Do you know who he struck out the most? No, I don't. Claudel Washington. He struck out Claudel Washington 39 times. But as I'm going through the list, a couple of interesting things pop out like as a percentage, um, although he only struck out Juan Samuel 23 times, he only faced Juan Samuel 49 times. So Juan Samuel wound up striking out against Nolan Ryan almost half the times that uh, he faced him. Claudel Washington, not a, not a bad hitter, not a great hitter. Fourth on the list of most victimized uh, Nolan Ryan opponents, Rod Carew. And that I thought was interesting because Rod Carew, of course, very good contact hitter. And in fact, Rod Carew never struck out more than a hundred times in a season. His his uh, highest strikeout total was his first season, his rookie year, where he had 561 plate appearances and struck out 91 times and immediately dropped that to 71. He 
he hovered around there. It was even lower. Actually, he didn't hover around there. He got better and better as his career went on. So he had a thousand strikeouts in 10,000 plate appearances, striking out 10% of the time. But of course, against Nolan Ryan, he struck out 30% of the time. So I began wondering, so Claude L. Washington's 39, obviously Ryan struck out the most. Is that the most times anyone has ever struck out against anyone else? I don't know the answer to that. I'd like the listeners maybe to help me. I just thought of a couple names, number one and two on the all-time strikeouts list. So Jim Tomei, the most uh, he ever struck out, or the, the pitcher that he struck out most against, it only reached 29, and it was Brad Radke, who I don't think of as a great strikeout pitcher, uh. but he just pitched forever, right? Although, didn't they both play on the Twins for a while? Wouldn't that preclude them <laughs> striking out? Maybe that overlap was uh, kind of low. So then I looked up Reggie Jackson, and I did indeed find out that Reggie Jackson, speaking of twin pitchers, Reggie Jackson was struck out by Burt Bylevin 49 times in 140 plate appearances. So this is an afterball slash trivia call out. Please, if you know the answer to this question, who was struck out the most times by who? Can you beat Reggie Jackson's 49 times against Burt by Levin? John, what is your Johnny Humphreys? My favorite Nolan Ryan story did not make the film fastball. Ooh, ooh, bonus track. So I'm going to share it with you now. 1986, I'm going to need Mike Pesca to help me with the details of this game. The playoff game against the Mets, Dwight Gooden versus Nolan Ryan. Okay. Do you remember it, Mike? Yes. And Nolan Ryan had been sort of, he was 39 years old and they were sort of nursing him a little bit that year for the first time in his career. Right. Mike Scott was the ace of the staff. Ryan was maybe even third. And so there was a playoff game. I don't remember what game of the series it was or where it was, but it was Dwight Gooden against Nolan Ryan. And Ryan was supposed to only pitch six innings. The game was going so well for both pitchers. They left Ryan in. I believe they both finished nine innings. Uh, yeah. And then Gooden pitched the 10th and won the game. Is that correct? The game was won in the 12th. In the 12th. Yeah, bottom Gooden of the 12th. Gooden pitched 10 and Ryan pitched 9. Something like that. Anyway, that was the end of Nolan Ryan's season. Could, Ryan's stats were, uh, in those nine innings, two hits, one earned run, 12 strikeouts. Good in 10 innings, but nine hits and four strikeouts, one earned run. He went to see the great doctor in Birmingham whose name escapes me. James Andrews. James Andrews, to check out his elbow. And and James Andrews does the little physical test he does or was doing in 1986. And he bends Nolan Ryan's arm back and he feels it. He says, Nolan, I have bad news. It's torn. And you need surgery. And Nolan Ryan said to him, well, doc, I'm 39 years old. It's a year and a half in 1986 till you can start pitching again after Tommy John or till you're ready to come back. So I'm going to be 41 years old. I'm not going to have surgery. I'm just going to see what happens. So he said in the off season, he always began throwing again December 15th. And this year he waited till January 15th because his elbow was torn. And he said he picked up the ball and he went outside and he started tossing it around. It felt fine. And he went down to spring training and everyone was worried. And he started pitching and he felt fine. So Dr. Andrews, who makes the rounds at spring training, sees Nolan, says, how you feeling, Nolan? And he says, I feel good. And he checked him out. He says, it's healed. Your ulnar collateral ligament healed itself. And I don't have any explanation for this other than it happened. So good luck. And then he pitched 
another seven years before, at age 46, his elbow, uh, the UCL finally actually did pop, and that was the end of his career. Fast forward to the following spring, Nolan's son is at TCU playing baseball. Nolan's hanging around, and he says, hey, let me throw batting practice. He's 47 at this point. Picks up the ball, starts throwing. His arm feels great. I, he's telling me the story while we're interviewing. I said, dude, you could have come back again. He said, I could have. And the owner of the club uh, said, Nolan, please come back. I hear you're throwing and you feel good. And he said, you know what? If I could give you 200 innings, I'd come back. But I think I could probably only give you about 180 because it's my arms fine. But the rest of me, to you know, those last couple of years, getting from one start to the next, my legs and my body and everything hurt so much. That I, it just, I didn't think I could give him 200 innings, and I wasn't about to take a man's money if I couldn't give him 200 innings. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, but I'll tell you what, my arm's fine. I can go out right now and give you a few innings. And uh, who are we to say he couldn't? I would not be able to see him. <laughs> Josh, what's your Johnny Humphreys? The basketball jump shot was probably invented in the 1930s. A guy named Ken Sailors is credited with doing it by uh, most people. Before everyone started jumping in the air like a bunch of showboats, the dominant shot in the game was the set shot. No jumping, all in the flick of the wrist. Back then they were better than that. (laughs) (laughs) They were. Nobody shoots a a set shot anymore, or so I thought. But there's a woman on the Washington Huskies, Chantel Osahor, who has a set shot, and it is awesome. Osahor is a big woman, a six-foot-two center, but she shoots 36% from three without ever lifting off the ground. Patrick Redford of Deadspin wrote a tribute to her, which shows her awesomely weird wrist flicking, stationary shooting form. And I encourage you to watch it because it will make you happy. And Washington is in the final four, so you'll get to watch her in live game action, which is even better. But if you want to learn how to shoot a set shot like Chantel Osahor, who better to explain it than a very old person who came up shooting that way back when it wasn't a really strange way to shoot. I found a video on the YouTube channel B-Ball Breakdown where a guy named Coach Nick has a bunch of instructional videos. And in this video, he gets tips from Sheldon Seltzer, who played basketball for NYU in 1952. Of course. So here is part one of Sheldon Seltzer explaining how to shoot a set shot. I played against uh, Sonny Hertzberg. <laughs> Sonny Hertzberg at that time was on the New York Knicks. And I watched him shoot a set shot, and a few times he showed me how he did it. It was mostly in his wrist. And if I remember, I'm left-handed, and I also it would be in my wrist, and my, and my, uh, my left foot would come out. So the shot would go like this. So since I was just audio, let me fill you in that uh, Sheldon does take the shot. It went nowhere close to going in. Uh, <laughs> keep in mind that the guy's in his 80s, though. He's in his 80s, guys. Come on. Give Sheldon Seltzer a break. Um, I think we'll give him a pass. Good form on Sheldon's set shot. All right. Now back to Sheldon Seltzer's instructions. Now remember, you'll notice there's no jumping involved here. It's a two-handed set shot, which means no jumping in, at all. Well, a very little bit. Watch my feet. My foot. Okay. Nice. A little bit, a little bit. A little bit, yes. Now, how about arc? Did they teach you to really moonball it, or was it just more toward the um, the, bo- the shot had a... a you did not use the backboard in the shot. Okay. It was a straight-in shot. We had to spin the ball. 
And that was it, just many, many hours of practice. So two hands equally. Two hands equally. My thumbs would be like this, facing each other. And it was all in the wrist. I used, huh. to, I used to shoot it from half court easily. I mean, not make the shot all the time, but hit, at least got the rim. <laughs> Never missed the rim from half court. I love that so much. Oh, I used to shoot it from half court all the time. It wouldn't go in. But <laughs> <laughs> I love Sheldon Seltzer. And I also love, like, how many different things in sports do people say it's all in the wrist? Let's add this, uh, this one. Fastball all in the wrist? Partly in the wrist. All in the wrist. Craig Kimbrell's got the wrist action. You get the the backspin on the four-seamer, which creates extreme magnus force, which creates lift, which causes the ball to fall less than a ball thrown without the wrist flick. Magnus force coming soon to an <laughs> outdoor major league stadium near you. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us using your wrist at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Reminder that our live show is coming up in D.C. on Monday, April 25th. You can buy tickets at slate.com slash live. Thanks to John Hawk. Great wrist action today, Hawk. Thank you, Josh. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.